Okay. And we're going. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the Devil Down WNBA podcast. Eric Nemchuk and Steven Trinkwald with you once again. We have a little exercise going. Uh, we're going to be doing a another redraft episode. Uh, last time we did 2014. Now we're going to be doing 2015 because we can. You know, it's, it's the next year over. But first, we have some free agency news. Steven. Sure, let's start with the news about cord players. We had a, a trio of players get cord, uh, which essentially means that they are being offered a one-year Supermax contract. They cannot negotiate or sign with any other team after getting this core designation. Um, they can still negotiate with their own team, and that team can negotiate with other teams for maybe a sign-in trade. Uh, and you know, the, the player that gets cored uh, in that team, whatever team they eventually end up with, can negotiate on, on a longer Supermax deal or a, a longer deal on a lower salary. But uh, let's start with Vegas, who decided to core Liz Cambage. I think this was kind of a, a no-brainer in, in my opinion. There are really only other high-profile unrestricted free agents were Kayla McBride and D-Rob. You know, D-Rob not really in a consideration for that kind of uh, salary tier. I don't think McBride will end up getting up there either. But, you know, Cambage, in, in my opinion, around a, a top five player or so. So this one, to me, you know, there was no real reason for, for them to not do this. It, it seemed like going into a couple seasons ago that Cambage was uh, into the idea of playing in Vegas, you know, obviously missed the bubble season, but you know, she's, she's worth that contract for me. Was there anything uh, that you kind of wanted to add with regards to Vegas's decision to core Cambage? Nah, you pretty much covered it. I think it was a no brainer. Not sure how this, or if it, if it uh, kind of is a precursor to her future in Las Vegas. Cause you know, we, we don't know what the pandemic is going to be looking like in a few months or if, you know, international players are going to want to play here again. But um, yeah, I mean, pretty easy decision. Top uh, top caliber talent. Um, obviously one they're going to want to have around as long as possible and uh, will deservedly get all that money for when she does come back. Uh, let's go to the Seattle Storm who cored Natasha Howard. There are other options, you know, Alicia Clark, also an unrestricted free agent. Sue Bird, an unrestricted free agent. Uh, I think Howard was the right call here. You know, I don't think there's any real concern that Sue Bird would go somewhere else. But how did you feel about this one? Uh, I once again think it was the right idea. Uh, let, let's let's go to the polls. Let's go to the polls. I we ran a, a poll on the uh, Double Down WNBA Twitter account. Um, I asked basically, um, do you agree with the decision, or do you think they should have called Alicia Clark instead? Fifty-one uh, percent of responders voted for Natasha Howard. 41.9% of people would have rather uh, seen Alicia Clark cord. And I didn't, I didn't include Sue Bird in that poll because I, you know, we're kind of figuring that Sue Bird is going to retire as a Seattle Storm. But I think it was the right decision because Howard, you know, we love Alicia Clark on this podcast, probably more than a lot of other people do. But Howard going forward, I mean, she's the younger player. She's a premier defender at a more valuable defensive position. And I think if you, if you let Howard enter unrestricted free agency, there's a chance that some team with a lot of cap space is just going to throw the bag at her and you're not going to be able to match that. Cause keep in mind, Seattle is in kind of a precarious cap situation, not horrible, but I think if you're, if you're looking to keep a, a game changer like Natasha Howard, you need to do that. Plus Alicia Clark is, I, I believe she's entering her age 34 season and that's just not a player I, I'd, I'd want to offer a super max to basically. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I do agree. And, you know, even if Seattle doesn't want to pay Natasha Howard that money, similar to what we were just kind of talking about at the top of the show, like you are, you, someone's going to want to pay her that money. Um, right. 
So you can either kind of decide to pay her that for one season. You can work on work out something for a little bit less uh, of an annual value, or you know you can get something in return for her to, from a team that does want to pay her that. And you know I kind of understand you know the replacement options argument uh, here with Seattle. You know they have uh, at least one established backup big in Mercedes Russell and one pretty impressive prospect in Ezzy Magbagor um, that can maybe combine to fill. I don't know, 75% of what Natasha Howard does. Uh, whereas, you know, Seattle doesn't really have any other Alicia Clark types. You know, you might be looking at just re-signing Sammy Whitcomb and, and shifting her or Drew Lloyd to the three, which uh, I'm sure they wouldn't want to do or, or, you know, bring somebody else in in free agency after losing Clark. But yeah, I mean, we, we kind of hit it all, I, I think. I, I think Seattle, after they kind of move on from, uh, you know, uh, Morgan Talk and Crystal Langhorn's contract. I think they'll be able to figure out, e- even if it means, you know, not being able to bring back Sammy Wickham. But these these two players, uh, along with Sue Bird's uh, Max deal, if she decides to to return, I think I think they'll be able to work it out. And for me, this was the right call to make sure you don't lose Howard for nothing, who I think is going to have uh, a ton of suitors. Some uh, something tells me they're they're still going to be decent next year. <laughs> so let's move on to uh, I think the most interesting core decision here. Uh, at least for players that ended up getting cored, and the LA Sparks coring Neka Agumake. Um, their other real choice was Chelsea Gray, uh, Candace Parker, not qualified to receive the core offer anymore. This was, you know, the toughest option on the board for me, at least, choosing between Neka and, and Chelsea. What did you think about this one? Mm, looking back on it, I can't say I was surprised, but this one did give me the most thought. My thought process was like, Neka Agumake, she's. Again, a player we both love, I think. Um, she's a player who can, as you like to say, change the culture of your team on both ends of the court. But I don't think she – it's been a while since she's played at the Neko Gumake level that we, we typically associate with her. And uh, Chelsea Gray, you know, you think of the elite point guards in the league, and there aren't many, but she is one of them. And I think, once again, you're running the risk here of – well, this is, this is tough because, I mean, like, someone is going to offer either player – a ton of money if they enter unrestricted free agency. I just would have thought that like, you know, Gray being the younger player and being, you know, playing a very valuable position would have been uh reason for reason for coring. Like I can't argue with like, you know, coring Neko Gumake because he's still Neko Gumake. Voters, by the way, and uh, on the double down Twitter account, 78% said yes, coring Neko Ogumake was the right decision about 22% would have rather they core Chelsea Gray. What do you think? Well, one thing that you had mentioned, you know, Gray being the younger option, maybe that's the reason to core NECA because you're only locking her in at that Supermax for one year. And, okay. you know, she hasn't really been the NECA Ogumake uh, that we're used to, at least not in in the prior season. And, you know, we've talked a lot about Gray's numbers not really being where they should either. But But maybe LA is just kind of set on locking Gray in at Supermax money for an extended period of time. And, and they're a little bit more comfortable with, you know, NECA wanting to kind of, uh, I guess, prove that that contract value after, you know, kind of a, a weird 2020 season. Uh, but it's weird. Kind of going into this, I was like, well, they should definitely core Gray. You know, they have two star bigs. And, and I was kind of like forgetting about, you know, Tolliver, who's definitely a different type of player than, than Gray. But mm-hmm. maybe maybe if Tolliver wasn't around this they would have chose gray and, and, you know, just made sure that they kept one of one perimeter player and, and could work it out with either one or the other of NECA and Parker. But, you know, it's not like they have a ton of replacement options for NECA Gumake either. You know what I mean? Their, yeah. their, their perimeter options, even if 
they are a lot different than Chelsea Gray or Christy Tolliver. They at least maybe have some more optionality there to kind of get talent at those positions between Raquana Williams and, and Brittany Sykes. So, and they don't really have anything in terms of a, a power forward of NECA's quality or, or uh, a center, if you wanted to consider Parker the, the power forward. So I think this, you know, it's an understandable choice, if not a no brainer, I think. Sure. And, and maybe it does end up with all three of them just getting long-term deals. Um, and maybe they just didn't want to waste a core year on Chelsea Gray because they had planned on doing that down the line. I don't, who knows? But Good point. Good point. Um, because NECA being the older player, you can only core a player three times, I believe. Um, well, I think it was three going in. I think in future it? seasons, it, it will be two. So it's three oh, now. Okay. And then I think after um, this next season, it will be, if I'm not mistaken. So Okay. Well, point remains. Uh, so the last one I wanted to bring up was um, Connecticut not choosing to core Alyssa Thomas. This was probably the one player that I think there was some anticipation that, you know, some people felt she probably would get cored. And obviously, you know, she she suffered a, a lower body injury uh, recently overseas, and there's still a little bit of question about the severity or the specifics about that. So I did kind of uh, expect Connecticut to to apply the core to Thomas and make sure that she couldn't leave in free agency. Were you surprised at all that uh that did not come for AT well yes until I I found out that she sustained a pretty bad injury sure so so hopefully uh you know they'll they'll come to uh some kind of agreement and and she'll be able to uh remain with Connecticut when once she's healthy but did you want to move on to I guess some of the other free agent um training camp contracts that were agreed to sure so we also saw a slew of training camp contracts signed signed from qualifying offers. Now, I'm, I'm pretty bad at this, to be honest. I'm, I'm still catching up on my CBA uh, ease. But uh, Richard Cohen of Her Hoop Stats does a really great job. Actually, everyone at, at Her Hoop Stats does a really great job of this. Quick plug, they've, they've got this new free agency or salary cap tracker. It's like an inter, uh, kind of interactive uh, salary, keep, uh, salary cap database. It's really, really quality. Like, it looks great. It's easy to understand. All the terminology terminology is clearly explained, so I'd highly recommend checking that out. According to Richard, uh, he says that in order to make a player restricted or reserved, those two free agency types, the previous team has to send out the relevant qualifying offer sometime between January 1st and January 14th, which, which just happened. If they don't, the player becomes an unrestricted free agent. Players can then talk to teams from January 15th onwards and begin signing on February 1st. So we're kind of in that period where um, we're in between qualifying offers and like actual free agency action. But we had a lot of uh, training camp contracts come out of these qualifying offers. Would you like to go over them real quick? Sure. And just to clarify, I think all of these are uh, were from reserved players that that signed the training camp contracts because, you know, a restricted free agent yes. would, would sign a much uh, much more lucrative deal in, in right. most cases. Uh, so Vegas, they signed, uh, uh, they signed Lindsey Allen and Emma Cannon to training camp contracts. Phoenix signed Shea Petty. Connecticut signed Beatrice Mompremier and Natisha Heideman. For Washington, they brought back a trio of Jackie Gemelos, Stella Johnson, and Suge Sutton. Minnesota signed Bridget Carlton and Los Angeles signed Taya Cooper. So, and just to be clear, these are, are not, these are not guarantees that any of these players will make the roster. Um, mm-hmm. They're not guaranteed contracts. It just means that, you know, these players can have an opportunity to make the team essentially. Of all of these players, who do you give the greatest chances of making the team they're signed with and who has the worst chance? Uh, the greatest chances, in my opinion, are the two players Connecticut signed. Uh, Bridget Carlton, I think is, is a no brainer. I think, mm-hmm. Taya Cooper, I think, will definitely make the team in Los Angeles. 
Shea Petty, I guess maybe it could go either way, but you know, Phoenix is going to look for inexpensive options. So I think for me though, I, there's probably only room for one of those players in Washington that, that they named. So yeah. I think Stella Johnson is probably the best of the three. So, you know, Suge Sutton there or Jackie Jamelos, I, I imagine at least one of those two won't be on the roster. Yeah. Washington, as we, as we discussed, is going to look a lot different. And, and I see Vegas too. Uh, Maybe one of those players sticks with the team, but I can't see either of them having a very significant role, especially with Kelsey Plum hopefully coming back. And if, if Cam Beige comes back, it's like, well, you know, like like you said, like you mentioned, these these are low-risk contracts. Um, they're just – you got to get them out there or, or the players are going to become unrestricted. So that concludes uh, the news for the day. We'll probably have more for you next week. Really fun time period coming up in WNBA free agency. We hope it is as crazy as it was last season. But now moving on to the main attraction, our 2015 redraft. So do you want to give us some context just in terms of like what was going on at the time of this draft? You know, some of the players that were were coming out, you know, I think this was a, a bit of a unique situation at the time, given who was anticipated to be to be at the top and, and the questions around who would even be eligible. Yeah, I remember uh, back in 2015, it was, th- this was like when I first started following the WNBA in like 20. 10, 2011, something like that. Uh, I was totally blissfully unaware of the draft eligibility rules. And I feel like it wasn't really as, as, as common for players to, you know, leave school, leave school early, pardon me, to enter the WNBA draft as it is today. Like now every class is like, okay, well, we're just assuming we're just going to put so-and-so in our mock draft because we're just going to assume she leaves school early or or she uh, renounces her NCAA eligibility early back then that wasn't really the case I don't think there are a couple key prospects that we're going to talk about later who did enter the WNBA draft or did leave college early they you know you can forego your NCAA eligibility after a certain point to declare for the WNBA draft but before this happened like I don't think there was a clear consensus number one pick uh Kalina Mosqueda Lewis's name was tossed around I think Elizabeth Williams uh was was mentioned I don't really recall who else. Not as strong of a class as, as 2014, I don't think. I, I think you'd agree with me. But those early, these early eligibility players really uh, shook things up a lot. Yeah, so, so Jewel Lloyd was a true junior. Uh, Amanda Zowie B, a little bit older for her class, but she'd only played two college seasons uh, at Minnesota. And I think the only other time that a true underclassman, you know, I think players had come out with a year of eligibility remaining, but, but they were, you know, a red shirt uh, season. And the only other true underclassman, I believe was, um, was Kelsey Bone in, in tw- just a couple of years earlier in 2013. And I think this, this 2015 class is, is an interesting one because uh, for us to do this redraft, because one, I, I don't think there are going to be really any, lottery carryovers save for one obvious one um and i think really the theme of this class as a whole is you know don't give up on the young players too early because this class is full of some at this point in their careers some really valuable wnba players players that were maybe a little bit more slow developing in terms of kind of coming into their own and finding their role in the league but the final product has some really really productive players that you would just love to have on your team for sure, for sure. So what we're going to do is we're going to basically uh, do our own little mock draft, mock redraft, if you will. We're going to be taking turns selecting players and then just chatting about them. 
So, so I'll go, I'll go number one. I think number two okay. is kind of where this gets interesting. So I, I kind of want to see where you go with it. Sure. Uh, the number one pick. Oh, well, actually, before we get into it, let's just kind of go through the, the first round. I'll go through it quickly. Jewel Lloyd went number one. Amanda Zowie B went number two. Kalina Mosqueda Lewis was the third pick. Elizabeth Williams, Cheyenne Parker, and Dierica Hamby were picks four through six. Crystal Bradford, Ali Malott was number eight. Brittany Boyd, Samantha Logic, Kia Stokes, and Isabel Harrison rounded out the first round and just a couple notable second round picks picks 14 through 17 are, are picks that are either you know still established WNBA players or at least players that we saw in 2020 Sierra Burdick Natasha Cloud Rashonda Gray and Benajah Laney rounding it out at, at number 17 so I will uh, kick it off here the number one pick in this redraft a no doubter of a pick still for me is mm-hmm. Jewel Lloyd uh, definitely a no doubter. Pretty straightforward. I mean, she was easily the best player in the draft class at the time, and nothing that has happened since then has changed that. I don't think there's any franchise level type player in this class, but you know, outside of that, Lloyd is you know as good as you can get. I think as a role player in terms of being a perennial All Star, a perennial All League contender, and I think she's really the only player in this class who is kind of in that classification. And you know, she's a, a perfect kind of secondary scorer, tertiary creator type who took a massive leap forward in a few key areas this season. But, you know, even before that, she was a player that you definitely want to have in, in on your team. So in terms of, I guess, uh, I mean, is there anything else to say with regards to her in, in terms of her peers in this draft class, or should we maybe talk about the, the other thing we wanted to Well, you on? know, one thing I wanted to throw out there, this is another little historical nugget, totally useless, but I just wanted to say it. I remember um, at the time it was assumed that, you know, if Jewel Lloyd stayed in school, it would be who would be the number one pick in 2016, Jewel Lloyd or Brianna Stewart. And, you know, back then, uh, UConn and Notre Dame were a massive, massive college, uh, women's, women's college basketball rivalry. So that was really, that was a really uh, interesting discussion there. Um, Seattle Storm kind of lucked out. They got both of them. But yeah, I mean, Jewel, uh, she's a star caliber off guard. She can play on or off the basketball. She's a great athlete, above average defender. Maybe she hasn't really hit that MVP level ceiling she hinted at in Notre Dame, but her career has been, you know, a hands-down success thus far. And given the situation she's in, like playing for a really good franchise and on a really good team, I expect her to be one of the most decorated guards, like in WNBA history by the time she retires. Wow. I did not expect you to say that. So I'm I mean, she's already, she's already yeah, won sure. two championships. She's proven herself to be one of the best scorers in the game. It's, it's, it's more of the fit here than like the actual talent, I think. But I don't see this Seattle empire collapsing anytime soon, if you will. I mean, she is the perfect two guard next to play next to like a Sue Bird point guard and a Brianna Stewart big. Like, you know what I mean? She, because she, she can create for herself a little bit. She can knock down open jump shots. Uh, you know, she'll defend a, a couple different positions. So, I mean, Seattle really, <laughs> they got something special. I mean, what, what do you say? And by, and by most decorate, I mean like award winning, championship winning, not, not necessarily best. But when you think about it, like she's in the Team USA pipeline, um, she's going to be selected to more plenty more all-star games, right? She's always going to be in that all WNBA first or second team consideration. So like on the track she's on, she's going to have quite the resume when it's all said and done. That's what I mean. Sure. But how, how do you think she stacks up, I guess, in terms of like the, the number one picks of the, the decade or, or even kind of within her sort of like five year window, you know, a couple of years before, a couple of years after. Mm, I mean, she's definitely not as good as like a Brianna Stewart or Asia Wilson type of player, you know, a player who you can, expect to drag your team 
to contention year in and year out, no matter what's surrounding them. You know, Jewel had that chance last season. And, you know, Seattle was – they're okay. Uh, not last season. I mean, two seasons ago right now. But um, two seasons ago, you know, I mean, we, we saw. the She was she carried the load for them scoring-wise with the dip in efficiency. And Seattle was kind of beaten in the second round there, the playoffs. But at the same time, I mean, she's she's better than a Kelsey Plum. She's better than Jackie Young. Sabrina Unescu, obviously, jury's still out. I think – she is in between like a franchise player and a player who is, you know, just the best player in that class. Yeah, I, I agree. She's probably, you know, in the decade, she's probably in, you know, the latter half of, of the, the 10 or so above. I would even put her above Shanae Gumake for me personally. So, yeah, she's, you know, probably within the top three in the, the past five years. You know, Sabrina's class not included because I think it's too early. But the five years before that, you know, she's she's behind – Stewart and, and Wilson and ahead of the other players. So, you know, I think she's perfectly reasonable value for a number one pick, in my opinion. I agree. And, and we're given the context of the class, right? It's, it was a no brainer at the time. And I think history is looking, looking back pretty fondly on that pick uh, right now as well. So, so, so this next stretch of five or so players, I think is, is really interesting because in some ways it's weighing ceiling against maybe consistency over their first six or so years of being in the league. Uh, so I'm kind of interested in how this plays out. Like, like Benajah Laney, for example, had one amazing season and we'll, we'll kind of see how that's weighed. Whereas like yeah. Elizabeth Williams has been like a solid, but, but maybe sub all-star level contributor since, you know, pretty much a year or two in, in the league, her first season in, in Atlanta. So uh, who did you have as the, the number two pick in this class? Well, uh, and yeah, for those listening, Steve and I do not know what each other's picks are. So besides Julia, obviously, but second pick, I had Cheyenne Parker. And back at the time, I was totally bewildered at this pick. You know, Chicago had the number five overall pick. I thought uh, Dierica Hamby was the obvious choice, you know, both as the best player available realistically at that spot and fit for the team. Because, you know, Sylvia Fowles was kind of on her way out at the time, but I kind of figured, okay, Chicago, they're going to run with Belladon at the four. They're going to want to play fast, kind of play small ball a little bit. Why not get this player who is really skilled with the basketball, doesn't need the ball in her hands to be effective? You know, why, why are we taking a swing on this, this mid-major player? Well, Parker has made a believer out of me in recent seasons. I think now it's like neck and neck between Parker and Hamby. I think it's a pretty close call. Uh, I actually ran a poll on the Double Down Twitter account. Out of 58 voters, 58.6% chose Hamby. 41.4% said uh, Cheyenne Parker. And I phrased it, if you were a WNBA GM, which player would you rather have on your team going forward? And I did, need to emphasize that because I think neither player really started their career out very strong. Um, a few years ago, I think Hamby was clearly the better player. But after the season Cheyenne Parker had in the bubble, and even before then, you know, she showed continuous improvement year by year. And I think it just comes down to what you prioritize more in a, in a power forward because both of them are very good at several things. You know, they're both strong rebounders. You know, Parker may be a little better on the offensive glass. Both can make plays on defense. Parker blocking shots, Hamby, you know, stealing the ball. Both get to the free throw line at a pretty good rate. Um, for their position and have done so consistently over their careers. What tips the scale in favor of Parker for me is like her theoretical ability to defend centers. I'm not sure how many minutes you can run Hamby at the five. Granted, Parker is still going to get like overwhelmed by some of the best centers in the league. Like we saw this past season going up against Brittany Griner. She had trouble against Brittany Griner, but most players do, right? I think as a front court player, her positional versatility is greater than Hamby's. 
and again, that's all, that's purely what you, what you place. How do I put this? It depends on what you value. You know, Hamby can, Hamby's better at switching. Parker, I think is better at, you know, defending the rim and defending one-on-one. I also think Parker's ceiling is a tad bit higher, just evidenced by her year by year improvement. Like, let me, let me get this. Let, I just want you all to make sure you know this. When Shine Parker first got in the league, she could barely shoot a free throw, let alone, you know, finish with her left hand, make all these counter moves. She's shooting threes now, granted, not at a very high volume, but it's there. Um, I don't know what her ceiling is, but I think it's a little higher than Hamby's. And I will yield to you. I had Parker uh, a bit lower than you did. I had her number five in this class. The, the Hamby comparison is interesting to me because I, I do think Hamby just fits into a championship caliber team a little bit easier because, you know, I, I do think she, she can like just more seamlessly play different positions. You know, I, I don't think you really want to play Cheyenne Parker at, at the four. I mean, you can, you can nominally do it pr- preferably in maybe bench lineups, but I, I don't, I don't think you're really at a high level lineup if she is at the four. I agree with you that Parker is, you know, a better, I guess, quote unquote, like rim protector and, and better guarding bigger players. Uh, but I do think Hamby is a better defensive player overall. And obviously th- th- these are very different players. Like you're not just going to kind of dump the ball down to, to Hamby and have her post up. But yeah, I, I am a little bit lower on Parker than you. But with that said, uh, I guess I will use the number three pick to, to take Dierica Hamby uh, because I had her number two in this class with Parker a little bit lower. So, you know, I, I thought Hamby was, you know, pretty, pretty good in the 2019 playoffs. I didn't think she had a particularly good series against Connecticut the last time we saw her. But, you know, she's been an efficient offensive player, you know, I think she, you, you got to love her, her energy and, and stuff like that, you know, kind of the cliches, but she really is like one of the best cutters in the league. Like she yeah. just kind of finds, finds like duck-ins and, and stuff like that to get herself some, some easy opportunities. I just think she, she fits into her and the player I had the next spot below this at, at number three, in my opinion, aside from Jewel Lloyd, are the two easiest players to insert into a championship team. Um, so, so that's kind of why I had them here. Okay, yeah, and I can't argue with that. Like, I, I was picking Dierica Hanby. I had her ranked at number three. Um, like I said, I, I think her and Parker are neck and neck. You're lower on Parker than me, obviously, but it's understandable. I think Hanby is more skilled at the basketball, and I totally, totally agree that she can fit in just about anywhere because most of her value comes from outworking opponents. Like you say, it's cliche, but it is true. I mean, she gets out in transition more than just about any other forward. Um, in 2020, uh, 22% of her opportunities were in transition. 19% the previous season. That's really, really good for a forward. And she's just got this really good nose for the basketball. You know, she doesn't need to have the ball in her hands to make an impact. And that's something that's like you, you like to say, it's a very malleable skill. Effort is a skill. Um, and Derek Hamby is one of the best effort players in the league, but she is, she is skilled with the basketball as well. So definitely one of the top players in this class at the time. And still one of the top players from the class. Can I, can I just build on that point uh, a yeah. little bit? Cause part of the reason I, I'm a little bit lower on Parker, you know, you were mentioning effort being a skill, you know, Chicago's uh, transition defense is kind of a, a disaster, at least last season. And I, I really, I do think Parker is, is a huge part of that. You know, she, if there's a live ball opportunity, Parker is almost always going to be the 10th player up the court getting back on defense. And I, I really think she did kind of kill them defensively in transition. You know, hopefully that's, that's not something that continues year over year, but, but I, I thought it was a huge problem for Chicago last year. And, you know, obviously she, she plays the most important 
defensive position. Uh, and I think she's okay as a half court defender, but you know, I don't want to harp on it too much, but I, I thought she kind of, uh, she was a real liability in that area. No, that's huge. And that's a good observation. Yeah. The transition defense was awful and you do need to get back on defense more than Parker did the previous season. And that, it does kind of surprise me because when she, when she first came to Chicago, she was billed as more of an energy player who, who never takes a playoff, who, who always boxes out like a boss, but, um, and she has worked, you know, really hard to, to lose a lot of weight and to get herself into better playing shape. So I don't know, hopefully that's something that we see uh, in the next season. Like she gets back to, you know, playing that more of that style of basketball. Maybe it was the starting, the, 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 the minutes, you know, maybe it was the heavy uh, increase in minutes were weighing on her. I, I don't know, but we'll see what happens. I think uh, she's going to come back to Chicago and hopefully she can improve on that. So who would you like to take with the number four pick? Number four pick, I'm taking Elizabeth Williams. This is the one player in this class, and this is this is key for me. This is the one player in this class who I think is defensive player of the year caliber. I still say she should have won it back in 2018. I, I believe they gave it to Elena Beard. I, I think Elizabeth Williams should have won it. So if you value defense from your center, which I think you should, <laughs> this, this is obviously going to be your pick. She's a far better rim protector than either Hamby or Cheyenne Parker. That being said, both her shot blocking and rebounding numbers have kind of been decreasing over the past few seasons. And she's also really not going to give you much offensively if she isn't playing with a dynamic lead guard, as we saw the past few seasons. I mean, her, her offensive her offensive impact was greatly limited when she wasn't playing with a Kennedy Carter type of player. Like, you can just look at her her two-point shooting percentage. It's For a player who doesn't take jumpers, it's it's not good. But ultimately, I think what you see is what you get. As you mentioned earlier in the episode, um, she's a very solid contributor across the board and has been for many years. I think she's a player who's going to make the right decision with the basketball more often than not. I think I, I think her basketball IQ is very high. Yeah. Okay. I, similar to Parker, had Williams a little bit lower. I had her number six right behind Parker. And it's it's interesting. When we did the the bigs rankings uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had Williams a couple slots ahead of Parker, and, and I have that reversed now. I think I just kind of overvalued Elizabeth Williams as a as a two-way player and what I mean by that is like I agree with you that I I really value her defensively but I just don't think I realize like how bad the overall body of work is offensively in terms of you know she's had pretty much one season in the books of decent efficiency she's a center that is a career 48% shooter from two, yeah. you know, obviously she's undersized, but for her pick and roll numbers to never be really that impressive, you know, normally uh, we talked about this extensively on, on the prospects, I guess, podcast, you know, at this position, I, I normally value defense over offense, but for me, Parker is, is so much better offensively uh, than Williams that, that I did have her uh, above Williams and, and, you know, I think the difference defensively is, is significant in my opinion, but, but still I think Williams is, has struggled so much offensively. So, so I had her sixth. I think she's a, a good player. And I think there's, you know, six really quality players uh, in this, you know, starting caliber on a, on a really good team quality players. And then there's a, a kind of a line of demarcation after that. Um, so yeah, so, so no kind of slight to her. I, I don't think she's like drastically worse than the, than the player I would have had here, but Unless you have something else uh, to add with Williams, I'll, I'll go on to, I guess, what is now our, our number five pick, which I have uh, Natasha Cloud. I would have had her three. I think I was also higher on Cloud than you were when we did our point guard ranking. I mm-hmm. uh, had her a, a few spots ahead of you. But, you know, similar to uh, what I was saying about Hamby, like I think she she just really 
kind of you you see how she fits into a championship level team because she has i mean maybe one of the best floor games in the WNBA you know she obviously did take a while kind of coming into her own and it really kind of started with that first finals team in, in 2018 when when she kind of you know I, I don't know what happened between 2017 and 2018 but she just started getting to the rim more she could finish inside better you know she was obviously you know stronger and with that the outside shot came around a little bit yeah. more um, but it was also like just a couple seasons ago where she was like playing half as many minutes, you know, perhaps incorrectly, but she was playing half as many minutes as like Tierra Ruffin Pratt, who was just a complete one-way player. But, you know, I think even then, you know, you could see the outstanding floor game and kind of, you know, you and I both, both hate this, but we always make the exception for Natasha Cloud, like the intangibles or, or whatever, <laughs> when the individual efficiency wasn't there. And just as the finished product, you know, she can guard defensively multiple positions, you know, she can play off the ball a little bit more than she could uh, previously. And I just think her size, her strength at her position, her defensive versatility, as well as her basketball IQ. And now that the the offensive, you know, the finishing inside and the outside shooting has come around. Like she's, I think she's a player that I absolutely adore now. And, and I think she, she could so easily, and as she has obviously, but that was, you know, an anomalous team that you know, was the greatest offense of all time, yeah. perhaps. Uh, but I think she can, she, you see how she makes sense in a championship rotation. I think what I, you, you, you just mentioned it, like your last point, I want to see Natasha Cloud succeed on a team that isn't historically good on offense. Um, now, granted, she is one of the players in this draft class who has vastly outplayed her draft position. She was picked Washington at number 15. It's not often you see a team's second round pick, like have a much better career than the first round pick, but that happened here. Um, I agree with you. I mean, I think she's a really, really solid glue player. She can defend pretty much anywhere on the perimeter. She's not giving up any size or strength to anybody out there, which is very important, especially in the Mystics defensive system. And on offense, she can dictate the tempo and get the ball where it needs to go. That's, I don't think she's a needle mover playing offensively at point guard, but like you said, she is like one of the ultimate intangible players. Just, you know, I mean, she, she's vocal. She's a, she's a great leader. And like you said, I typically hate throwing out terms like that, but for her, it really is true. Um, the one knock I had in her, I was kind of, I was kind of waffling between her, you know, fifth, sixth, I was looking at her her synergy numbers, and keep in mind, this is something I did not have back in the day, uh, back in 2015. Um, her own transition numbers in recent seasons have been astoundingly poor. It was something like she was in like the, the 10th percentile or something in, in, in transition scoring, and that kind of surprised me because she's a big guard, she's a strong guard. Now, granted, her transition numbers, including passes, were really, really good. So that just tells me like, okay, she's she gets the ball where it needs to go. She makes the right decision. She plays with pace. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the the one thing besides the transition game is she can spot up, but she's still not really good at it. Like on that team, opponents are still going to be leaving her open like 10 times out of 10 to double or recover elsewhere, you know? But um, that's just, the, at, at this point in the, in the redraft, I think it's all piecemeal. Um, She's pretty clearly a top six player in the class, I think. I had her at six, so it's, it's not like some big difference. And I'm a big fan of her game because it is the ultimate intangible, the ultimate glue, the ultimate beyond-the-box score type of player. Okay, so I, I think we should, I guess, get to the, the last player before um, the inevitable line of demarcation I alluded to. Yeah. Uh, I think 
uh, most people will probably know who we are alluding to. So uh, it, it's your pick. Uh, take it away. I will take Benajah Laney. And this is very interesting because I'm wondering, would she have been above or below that line of demarcation had we done this exercise a few months ago? I mean, you know, I think, I, yeah, I think, I think there would be a, a five-player line of demarcation, like, in my opinion. She had one of the biggest one-season jumps I have ever seen. And at the time, like, I, I, I was a big Benajah Laney fan when she was at Rutgers, you know, she was kind of of a different player back then. You know, she was a small ball four. she was mostly a, a mid range jump shooter face up. Uh, she was really good offensive rebounding the ball. I was stoked when Chicago was able to get her in the second round of the draft. She was selected at number 17, which now looks like a steal back in 2019. You probably think, oh, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Honestly, like if she is what she is now, like if she is what she, what she was playing at in the, in the, during the 2020 season, I take her before Elizabeth Williams, but I need to see, you know, I got to see her do this again, man. Like just the the level which she played offensively compared to her past, just the sustained playmaking, sustained three-point shooting, also contribution to winning basketball, as we like to say on this show. She put up great stats, but her team was not great. And I also got to see how much she plays with a a bunch of other ball-dominant players. Like Atlanta, they've got some decisions to make. How does she play with Kennedy Carter, Tiffany Hayes, and Courtney Williams? Because I don't think Benajah Laney, for, for everything she accomplished last season, as a very well-deserving Most Improved Player Award, I think you would agree with me that she's still not a primary playmaker. But off the ball, there might still be some issues, you know, with her spotting up and, and making those open jump shots. So I think she, she's still a really decent player to have on your team, even if she does kind of fall back a little bit, because she can plausibly guard, like, three to four positions pretty, pretty easily. And that's, that's a valuable player to have on your team. But man, I mean, this is, I have to, I have to have her in the top six. You just have to, after what she did in 2020. But I'd be very, very interested to see what happens with her next. Yeah, it's funny. I had her four. It sounds like you had her five, but just the way things shook out, she ended up at six. And if every part of 2020 is real, this is way too low. And you said you would have her three or or so. I would have her. No, no, no. I had her four, but yes. Okay, yeah, I, w- I would have her the number two player on, on this list. If every part of 2020 was real, if, if just the ball handling and creating and scoring and, and passing is real and the spot of shooting is not real, I think this is probably about the right spot for her. Uh, maybe number five or so. Uh, so. So I was hedging a little bit when I had her four and she obviously ended up at, at six. But, you know, like you're saying, she's she's not so dynamic as a creator that you want her to be doing that all the time. You know what I mean? So... So if the spot up shooting doesn't really sustain, then there's, I think there's a hard ceiling to where she is offensively. And, you know, prior to 2020, like she was kind of the poster child for a player opposing defenses ignore in the half court. You know what I mean? Like, I think both of us were, were kind of in agreement before she was waived by Indiana that she should maybe play the third most out of there are small forward options behind Kennedy Burke and Victoria Vivians because she, she wasn't hitting the three ball. She wasn't getting to the rim. She wasn't finishing when she got there. Um, her best option prior to 2020, at least in that 2019 season, was like being okay as a long two-point jump shooter. So, mm-hmm. so I, I think people might think this is, this is too low, uh, the people that are really buying in. Uh, it, it's hard to really say it, it's too high, obviously, because of the players that are, are below her, but um, I, I understand if, if you are kind of buying all into what Benajah Laney did and, we're, and you're just thinking, you know, we, we saw her perform and this is just a little bit too low for her, but, um, you know, I, I'm okay with it. Okay. Well, uh, 
here we go. Uh, so you're taking the plunge in the second half of this draft class where things get much more complicated or much simpler, depending on how you look at it. Who are you taking at number seven? Sure. So for, for the number seven uh, pick, I think a, a player that, you know, maybe we talk about how, how low we are on her too much and it kind of make, makes it seem like we're maybe even lower on her than, than we perhaps are. But Amanda Zowie I have at, at number seven here. I imagine this is also the player that you have because I think she she's kind of in a category by herself in, you know, not, not as good as the players above her, but I think probably clearly better than the rest of this class here. You know, I think her reputation outside of this podcast <laughs> surpasses maybe what she really brings to the court. Uh, and, and it did kind of take her a while to kind of get going in the league. But I think this spot is is about right. And, you know, she's a fine rotation big, a fine third big. You know, she's just kind, kind of okay. She's okay, yeah. And the okayness comes from drastic strengths and drastic weaknesses, in my opinion. I'm not a huge fan, but I have to give her props for in several areas. Like, when she was in college at Minnesota, she they played exclusively zone defense, which made it for a rough adjustment to the pros, right? I mean, I don't think she's got really good accord awareness as, as a defensive player as it is. So having them coming into the WNBA playing only zone defense in the past did not exactly set her up for success on that end of the court. Um, and also, it, it kind of makes me wonder, like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, did Minnesota play zone defense because – they knew she couldn't really play man defense. I don't know. But regardless, that factored into the learning curve. Um, she has also obviously worked very hard to transform her body and get into a shape where she can handle these starters level minutes. When she was first drafted, that was not the case. She has extended her range as a jump shooter. Like she's not, she gets this rap as a stretch five, but I don't think she's a great jump shooter. But you know, she cut all the long twos out of her game and now she's a stretch five. So kudos. And she's always been like a really good rebounder, actually. Like it's interesting that she to see her shift in offensive rebounding versus defensive rebounding as she has moved to more of that stretch five role. Her offensive rebounding rate topped out at about 12.9% in 2016, which is pretty good. Believe it or not, she led the WNBA last season in defensive re- in defensive rebounding percentage at 34.2%. So that's that's really good. Um so she's got that going for her. I still think like she's a pretty poor help defender, but she's gotten a little better at that. There's one thing you you wanted to say about her two point shoot. Like her two point percentage was really really bad for a center. I mean, may, maybe that was just a product of playing with uh, Kia Stokes a lot, a player who's not really, you know, she stood behind the line and and got didn't really get guarded out there. But you know, it it is nice that she has her uh, that she can space the floor. Uh, you do need your you're big to convert more than, you know, 37% of her two pointers, but that's not like a a career norm. You know what I mean? She, Mm -hmm. she had been a little bit better prior to that. She had a couple seasons over 50%, which I, you know, is probably the bare minimum for what you could ask from a a center. But uh, the thing is that like, you know, she can, she gives you just enough spacing to be a credible three point shooting five, but she's not really a good enough defender to be a five. And and she's not so good of a, a, spacing four to really you know you know what I mean it's it's like a, it's a thin line but she doesn't quite get there I think well the one thing I want to say about her shooting is that I think her numbers get inflated somewhat like I remember over the past two seasons there were at least you know one, one or two games each season where she was just on fire from three like she hit like seven out of eight threes or something like that um and that was because like they literally were not guarding her so 
is it really that impactful being a stretch five if you're being ignored? You know what I'm saying? I I, I don't know. Maybe she's she's probably a better shooter than I'm giving her credit for. It, it just seems like with the small sample size, you know, of, of games across the season, those numbers kind of get inflated or something like that. But I don't know. No, that's I, true because in in 2019, I think uh, she had the game that was seven for nine against LA, right? And and, and, and people seven, were giving Derek Fisher, yeah. yeah. So she finished seven for eight, uh, and she finished the season at 31%. And if you take away that game, I think she was at like 24% or something mm-hmm. like that. I didn't do the math, but I remember tweeting about it one time. So, um, so but you know, with that being said, any objection to her being in this spot? No, not really. Okay, so that was you're at number seven, correct? That was number yes, seven. Th- that was number seven. Yep. Okay, for, so for number eight, I'll take Brittany Boyd. Um, she was already selected by New York at number nine. This is a player who's, you know, kind of fallen out of favor. She didn't play last season. Uh, but believe it or not, there was a lot to like here, at least in my opinion, before injuries kind of took their toll on Brittany Boyd. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. If you haven't listened to the players, uh, our little under 25 ranking players, I liken her game a lot to Jordan Canada's uh, in several ways. You know, they're both explosive point guards who made a ton of hay in transition. Boy generated a lot of steals because, you know, quick hands. She was a really good pick-and-roll defender in her prime. And the weaknesses were also similar. You know, she was kind of bogged down their half-court offense um, because she wasn't really a great three-point shooter, not necessarily the best decision-maker, had a tendency to play too fast. But, like, she was an athletic beast before she got injured. I think it was – was it an Achilles or something like that in her third season? But uh, before she got hurt, she got to the free-throw line at, like, an absurd rate. She led the entire league – in free throw rate, free throw rate as a rookie, almost 70%, which for a guard is insane. I mean, for anyone, that's insane. For anyone, yeah, yeah, and let alone a point guard. So I would like to see a player like Brittany Boyd play for someone who isn't Bill Lambier and for someone who isn't starting two centers because uh, I think she'd be, well, like I said again, before injuries, I think she would have been a lot of fun in an up-tempo system, maybe Las Vegas Bill Lambier or something like that. But at the time, I think she was a pretty good player, and history won't remember that. But when we're taking into account like what we would have done differently in this draft class, I think she was taken about where she should have been. I, I think the comparison to Jordan Canada is giving Jordan Canada a little bit of short, short shrift. I, I don't think Brittany Boyd was ever the passer that Jordan Canada is. I think Canada, even with her limitations, is a, can give you a little bit more in the half-court offensively. You know, Boyd, she was definitely – someone that that really pushed it hard for you and she was a pretty effective transition player at her peak but you know she was not maybe similar to Jordan Canada was not going to be guarded uh in the half court she could never really I guess figure out how to defend without fouling either like her foul numbers are were were pretty pretty high uh so I I had her a little bit lower but you know no objections because because of kind of where we are and I think maybe you know if you if you play her career over a couple different times and that injury doesn't happen you know, maybe, maybe things shake out a little bit differently. And, you know, she is, you know, only going to be in her like 20, age 28 season. So I definitely wouldn't write off ever seeing her again. You know what I mean? I think maybe a, a certain team in a certain situation could, could use a Brittany Boyd again. They could. Um, but like, like I said before, like it's, it's tough for point guards who can't shoot to have extensive careers in the WNBA. And that's, I, I don't know, man, there's more and more talent in the league every year. And, and if you take just one year off, it's, it's tough. Where, so where did you have her? I, I had her I had her pretty low. I had her number 11. Oh, okay. Um, so with number, I guess we're up to number nine now. Uh, these next two players, I, I think, are pretty close. The player I had eight and nine, 
Uh, I ended up going with Kia Stokes over this other player because the one thing that you could kind of say about Stokes is, is you know, she has that one definable skill, I think. Yes. Uh, particularly in her younger days, you know, she was such a force defensively for that 2015 Liberty team. And, you know, I don't think she ever really got back to that level, but but even this year's Liberty team, when, when they had both Stokes and Zowie B on the court, they posted, you know, about a 98 defensive rating, which is pretty admirable for that squad. Uh, you know, playing with those two bigs together. And I think Stokes uh, was more of a part of that than, than Zowie B, to be, to be honest. So I think she is still a, a solid defensive player, you know, maybe what you would call like a defensive specialist. Uh, I don't really think the three-point shot is ever going to really be a reliable weapon for her, like New York tried to kind of turn it into. But for having a kind of a defined strength, I think, as opposed to somebody who maybe might be like uh, below average at, at every single thing. And there's a strength like slightly below average. I mean, and I think that is kind of a strength in its own right to where you're not getting killed in any one area. Uh, like maybe uh, the next uh, player we, we might talk about, but I think, you know, Stokes being, being so uh, strong defensively, particularly, you know, when, when she was at her peak of her athleticism, um, I think would put her at the this spot for me. I definitely agree with that. It's very rare to see, to see a center come into the league and automatically be one of the best defensive players in the league. Like, out of the box, Kia Stokes was a revelation defensively for that team. Honestly, like, she could have given – she gave Jewel Lloyd a run for her money for Rookie of the Year. Of course, um, Stokes' game was not flashy or, or offensive-minded, so that award ultimately went to Lloyd. But, I mean, she was a, a very, very valuable player for that team because, like, she was so good on defense. I, I think – Stokes' problem was she just kind of peaked too early, you know? I mean, defensively, like she, like I said, she was one of the best rookies I've ever seen. The the pedigree coming from UConn, uh, it was obviously played a factor. But when I said, like, Zowie B had a, had a really steep learning curve defensively, like, Stokes' learning curve was just like a straight line. Because, I mean, she she was immediately playing a lot of minutes and defending everywhere. Um, I remember as a, you know, as a sky fan, she was one of the few players in that league, in the league who during uh, Elena Deladon's MVP season in 2015, who gave Elena Deladon problems on defense. And that's not really a center. So, I I mean, I think she was a a one-way player whose ceiling is, is pretty limited. That being said, I think it was pretty clear. She was pretty woefully miscast last season. It was really weird seeing a player like her kind of, float around on the on the three-point line like she's never really been that effective on offense and even you know the free throw it was there early in her career not so much recently but I do believe she has something to offer a contending team still because she still does have that length she knows how to play defense that's the thing like you don't come into the league and and just be an amazing defender just because you're really athletic or just because you're really long you you got to know how to play defense and Kia Stokes knows how to play defense um and just to give some context for that rookie season she played uh, over 850 minutes, 6.6 block percentage. Yeah, really crazy stuff. So, and and that was that was the year I believe New York really really uh, broke out under Bill Ender. They struggled previously, so um, she was a big part of that as as a really grinded out sort of team. So that was that was an awesome year for her. Um, you're right, she kind of fell off uh, pretty quickly there, which is a shame. But I don't know, man. I, I think she's still got something to offer. So I guess who is your, who's the next player on your list? I think we'll be on the same page here. I have Isabel Harrison. Is that the same for you? Yep. That's that. Those are the kind of two players I was talking about for that, that pick. I had uh, Stokes eight and Harrison nine. Okay. So like, I really don't have a very strong opinion on Isabel Harrison. Uh, I think she's a serviceable backup center and that's about it. You know, 
This is I. She tore her ACL uh, her senior season playing at Tennessee, which is a shame. Uh, I, I do think she would have gone a lot higher in the draft had she not uh, injured herself. She was picked by Phoenix at twelve, and just for context. Phoenix won the championship in 2014 with one of the best teams we ever saw. So they didn't really have a need for a player to come in immediately uh, and, and play the following season. So, and she was a really good athlete in college. So I don't know, maybe she never fully recovered from it. Maybe really never got her explosiveness back or something like that. But I don't know, like I'm having a hard time thinking of things that Izzy Harrison really excels at. She's not huge. She's not much of a defensive playmaker. Um, she's not going to stretch you out beyond the three-point line uh but you know at the well, same time she hasn't played on that many good teams so as i was kind of saying I, I think her her quality and this is going to sound like a slight but i don't think it is is her her quality is that she's just kind of like slightly below average at at everything like there's nothing that she is really going to kill you in you know maybe maybe you wish for a better defensive rebounder at that position but i think you know, she's, she's mobile enough. She can give you kind of enough uh, around the basket or, or stuff like that. Like there, she has no kind of defining weakness that's really going to kill you out there. But I, I do think she's maybe overmatched as like a starting center and, and you'd really kind of want her more as like a quality rotation center or, or big, I guess, you know, you know, playing alongside your center or your power forward. Well, and, and that's the thing, like just kind of spitballing here. If, if I, as a Sky fan, if you told me tomorrow that Isabel Harrison is going to be my backup center next season, I'd be like, yeah, okay. I'm fine with that. Have her play with Courtney Vandersloot a little bit. Have her play with Allie Quigley a little bit. That, That's fine. She's a perfectly serviceable backup center. And for for for, the, for this redraft, I mean, I think you can make the case that she could be a couple spots higher too, just because of that. And she's, she's dependable at that. And that's all I've got to say on her. Okay. So we're at, we're at number 11. Yeah. Uh, I will, uh, I will go ahead and take Kalina Mosqueda Lewis. Um, slim pickings here, I, I think, at the bottom of this draft. Uh, uh, did you have her at this spot? Was she lower for you? No, I actually chickened out and did not have a 12th pick. I was hoping I could trade it. <laughs> Sell it for, for cash considerations? Yes, um, cash considerations. That's right. Uh, so, so, well, this is number 11 anyway. So, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so you know, for, for at least a couple of years, she contributed to a, a good team before the wheels kind of fell off. You know, 13 minutes a game for, for a championship team is – you know, not nothing, I guess. Uh, you know, she wasn't really in the rotation come playoff time for, for that team. But she, again, at least in theory, had a thing she could do really well at the WNBA level. Uh, could eat some innings for you in, in terms of just kind of uh, playing some minutes while, while providing some floor spacing. But I think defensively, you know, it was just a, a little too much uh, of a disaster. So, but you got to pick someone here. So yeah. I think you, you go with the specialist who you know kind of has the one skill and hope um you can surround her with i guess enough defensive talent to to kind of make it work but uh um yeah so on to the the last pick i guess okay so uh that being said i will not trade it because i actually had a different player at number 11 that's Rashonda gray so she flashed a lot of potential in college but for some reason just never really lived up to it not sure why if it was the speed of the game or something like that she's always been like this really physical player who's been really good at drawing fouls like in her career in her WNBA career her uh, free throw rate is about 49 percent which is really good and rebounding like in 2019 she was second in the, in the league in offensive rebounding percentage but for some reason like it's that's that wasn't enough to earn her consistent minutes and I think that says something also being out of the league for two seasons probably also says something like at the end of the day, I mean, she's, she's a backup big. She's going to go out there, attack the glass, 
give you some fouls, <laughs> uh, hopefully draw some fouls in return, and uh, that's about it. But um, like you said, this is this is a tough spot in this redraft. I think, uh, and it's interesting. Like 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 Gray was kind of tossed around as, as, as a potential lottery pick, I think, before this draft happened. Um, she ended up being picked in the middle of the second round by Minnesota and just never really established herself in the, in the WNBA. Yeah, well, it was kind of a nice story for the the 19 Liberty after, like you said, being out of the, the league for a few years. And, you know, I thought she might have had a chance to play a little bit more in 2020 for LA than, mm-hmm. than she ended up playing. Uh, um, but I think Christina Nigue surpassed my expectations. I think she is still probably worth keeping around as like a third center, maybe not, maybe not for LA with everyone back, but but for someone on a minimum contract, probably, you know, I think you can, you can do worse by all accounts. She's like a, a great presence in the locker room and stuff like that. And it's great to see her be able to, to get back in the league. And I, I also had her at the the number 12 pick over, I guess, you know, really the only other contender, I guess would be, Sierra Burdick. I, I I think Gray is the the right choice here. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it it is it was weird to see her uh, kind of fall out of favor with the Sparks pretty quickly too. Um, but if you're in that situation, I think you 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 do need to give those minutes to Anigwe because that's who you're investing in for the future. Would you agree with that? I would. Yeah, and and she made you know, uh, she did decent with that opportunity. I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so uh, is there anything else you kind of wanted to go over here? I don't think there's enough depth in this class to really do a second round. No, and there, there, you know, I think the last time we did this, we talked about some of the players that, that didn't quite make the top 12 for us. Um, but, you know, to be honest, there, there just isn't even the depth in this class to really do that. Yeah. Um, the, the 14 class had, you know, maybe like 16 quality WNBA players, and, and this one has a little bit less than that. So I, I had fun. Uh, this was this was a fun exercise. We we differed a little bit there uh, in picks, you know, around picks two through through six, which is uh, makes it interesting. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it is always interesting to see what the other uh, the other person values more out of a out of a pick. And if you're doing this exercise, like how much do you weigh recent performance? How much do you weigh you know ceiling versus floor stuff? We like terminology we like to discuss there. So. Um, signing off <laughs> thank you very much for listening everybody if you have a a difference of opinion we'd love to hear it uh we're on twitter at double down wnba uh or personal accounts at trinkwald or at nemchak e we're on google play we're on apple podcasts we're on spotify so feel free to subscribe comment leave a nice review leave a rating but yeah we will uh we'll talk to you next week with hopefully some nice free agency news Otherwise, uh, we will uh, we'll see you when you see when we see you. So stay healthy and stay safe, and talk to you next time.